You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever-merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Today is Monday the 15th of January 2022. The time is 7.06am and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam, um, my very good friend, Imam Usman, um, here from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. Um, as is the norm, we're talking about, uh, or we shall be talking about two topics today. Starting at 7.30 a.m., the first topic is about the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, the blessing, uh, a blessing for all mankind, a prophet for all mankind, and we shall be looking at a few attributes of his personality. Um, the second topic, which we shall start at around 8.15 a.m., is about the need for peace in 2024. So, um, there are, as we know, conflicts going on in various parts of the world, in Europe, in the Middle East, um, other conflicts um, actually brewing uh, in other parts of the world as well. So we shall be talking about this very, very important issue of uh, the need for peace uh, in 2024 as things appear to be getting worse uh, across the world and there is a lot of um, uh, anguish and angst at the moment um, all across the world. So those are the two topics. Please do join in um, these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Good morning, Imam Manan. How are you doing? Uh, good morning. Um, by the grace of Allah, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, Alhamdulillah. In this cold weather, I'm, I'm still holding well. It's going good. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, um, it is, it's only going to get colder, so I guess um, we all need to brace for it. Uh, this week is supposed to be uh, quite cold um, in across the UK, actually. Yes, um, all well, absolutely. Would you like to uh, go through the headlines bearing in the newspapers this morning? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so the newspapers, starting with um, the Daily Telegraph, after several days of front-page stories on the situation in the Middle East, many of Monday's papers turned their attention instead towards domestic matters. The Daily Telegraph looks ahead of this year's general election. The right-wing the right -wing broadsheet, which is broadly supportive of the Conservative Party, carries a new poll which forecasts a Tory wipeout on a level similar to 1997 when Labour's Tony Blair won in a landslide. If the YouGov poll... Uh, if the YouGov poll bears out at the election, the Tories would retain just 169 seats, the paper says. The Times report that Rishi Sunak is facing pressure to toughen his flagship Rwanda immigration bill. Conservative Party Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson has told government whips uh, he will vote for a series of rebel amendments when the bill returns to the House of Commons on Tuesday. The paper reports the government wants to send some asylum seekers arriving in the UK to Rwanda and says a bill declaring it uh, a safe country would accomplish this. The policy is supposed to act as a deterrent to those aiming to arrive in the UK on small boats. 
but the eye reports that six people from Rwanda have been granted asylum in Britain since the deporting agreement in 2022, despite claims by the British government that the country is safe. Senior politicians and lawyers warn this undermines Mr Sunak's troubled bill. Stop the deaths is the heading is the headline on Metro's front page following news five people died in channel crossings on Sunday. The headline plays on Mr Sunak's Stop the Boats slogan. The Prime Minister said stopping the boats was one of his key priorities in 2023. A photo of Frederick X kissing his wife, Queen Mary, after becoming Denmark's monarch features on several front pages, including Metro as well. The Daily Mirror carries the battle of cry of sub-postmaster's champion, Ellen Bates, who insists those behind the post office computer scandal must be punished by the courts. We can't let them off the hook. It's the Mirror's headline. The Financial Times reports that the government made efforts to block the Japanese software company at the heart of the post office scandal from new public IT contracts in the early 2010s. Project Sushi, as it was known in Whitehall circles, <coughs> sought, <coughs> sought to exclude uh, Fujitsu and other companies from bidding on government deals on the basis of their performance in previous contracts, according to insiders who have spoken to the paper. The Daily Express reports that six people have been arrested on suspicion of a plot to disrupt the London Stock Exchange. The Metropolitan Police made the arrests after an undercover investigation by the paper exposed the plan. The Guardian carries warnings from pharmacists that an unprecedented shortage of medicines in the NHS is endangering lives. The causes of the crisis are thought to include the lower purchasing power of the pound since the Brexit referendum, reducing the NHS's ability to source medicines abroad and a government policy of taxing manufacturers, the paper says. The Daily Mail leads, the, leads with another story originating from a new biography of King Charles III, which is being ser- serialized by the paper. The paper carries claims from one of Queen Elizabeth's uh, staff that the late monarch was furious over the Duke and Duchess of Sussex claims uh, she had given her blessings to their daughter being named Lilibet. The Sun focuses on Holly Willoughby's a TV return on Sunday for Dancing on Ice following 101 days off air. The paper says she looked thrilled to be back. And the Daily Star says thousands of Brits will be trying to book a holiday gateway on what has become known as Blue Monday, which is referring to uh, one of the saddest and most depressing days of the year. And uh, today happens to be a Monday as well. I hope it's not blue. <laughs> <laughs> that depends on us. Yeah, that depends on us. Yeah, let's let's make sure that it's um, it's white. Um, right. Um, there in other news, there's um, there's this news item carried by the Guardian this morning, which talks about the world's five richest men doubling their their wealth as poorest get um, get poorer. So. Um, uh, according to this article um, in The Guardian, as I mentioned today, the world's five richest men have more than doubled their fortunes to $869 billion or £680 billion pounds since 2020, while the world's poorest 
almost 5 billion people have lost money. So let me repeat that. So the five richest men have more than doubled their fortunes since only 2020, um, since the year 2020. So effectively within three years. Uh, and those, um, uh, the poorest in the world, the bottom five billion people have lost money. The details uh, come in a report by Oxfam as the world's richest people gather from Monday in Davos in Switzerland for the annual World Economic Forum meeting of the political leaders, corporate executives and the super rich. The yearning, uh, the, uh, yearning gap between rich and poor is likely to increase, the report says, and will lead to the world crowning its first trillionaire within a decade. At the same time, it warns if current trends continue, world property will not be eradicated for another 29 years, highlighting a dramatic increase in inequity since the COVID pandemic. Oxfam said the world's billionaires were 3.3 trillion dollars or 2.6 trillion pounds richer than in 2020, and their wealth had grown three times faster than the rate of inflation. That's um, uh, that's all billionaires across the world. The previous statistic related to the top five. The report Inequality Incorporated finds that seven out of ten of the world's biggest corporations have a billionaire CEO or principal shareholder, despite stagnation in living standards for millions across the world. Compiled using data from the company uh, from the research company WealthX, it says the combined wealth of the top five richest people in the world, which are Elon Musk, Bernard. Bernard Arland, um, Jeff Bezos, Larry Ellison, and Mark Zuckerberg has increased by 464 billion or 114%. Over the same period, the total wealth of the poorest 4.77 or approximately 5 billion people, which make up about 60% of the world's population, has declined by about 0.2% in real terms. People worldwide are working harder and longer hours, often for poverty wages in precarious and unsafe jobs, according to this report. Across 52 countries, average real wages of nearly 800 million workers have fallen. These workers have lost a combined $1.5 trillion to over the last two years, equivalent to 25 days of lost wages for each worker. Mirroring the fortunes of the super-rich, it also says business profits have risen sharply despite pressure on households. Amid the cost-of-living crisis, it finds 148 of the world's biggest corporations together ranked in $1.8 trillion in total net profits in the year to June 2023, a 52% jump compared with the average net profits in 2018-2021. Calling for a wealth tax to to redress the balance between workers and super-rich, company bosses and owners... The report says that such a levy on British millionaires and billionaires could bring in £22 billion for the exchequer each year if applied at a rate of between 1% and 2% on net wealth above £10 million. Julia Davies, an investor and founding member of the Patriotic Millionaires UK, a non-partisan group of British millionaires campaigning for a wealth tax, said levies on, on wealth were minuscule compared with taxation on income from work. Just imagine what £22 billion a year invested in public services and infrastructure could pay for improving the lives of every one of us who live in the UK and providing our elderly, young and vulnerable with the care and support they both need and deserve, she said. According to, Oxf- um, according, according to Oxfam's um, 
a recent Gini index, which measures inequality, found that global income inequality was now comparable with that of South Africa, the country with the highest inequality in the world. The world's richest 1% own about 60% of all global financial assets, including stocks, shares and bonds, plus stakes in privately held business. In the UK, the rich 1% own about 36% of all financial assets, with a value of 1.8 trillion. Alima Shivji, Oxfam's interim chief executive, said these extremes cannot be accepted as a new norm. The world cannot afford another decade of division. Extreme poverty in the poorest countries is still higher than it was in uh, than it was pre-pandemic. Yet a small number of super rich men are racing to become the world's first trillionaire within the next ten years. So yeah, pretty. Um, stock uh, statistics there uh, that uh, this morning's article on Guardian which is uh, which is uh, really something to um, I would recommend everybody to read um, this morning anything else that um, caught your eye Imam Manan uh, yes we were speaking about the weather earlier and there mm. are several um, yellow warnings uh, which means that temperatures are dropping uh, below zero uh, up to even minus 10 in some places but um, mostly it's uh, still affecting scotland of course and uh, but some parts of the of of um, uh, ireland and uh, england as well uh, especially in the east towards the coast and temperatures are dropping really low and um, <clears throat> some rural communities could be cut off and rail surfaces may also be delayed and cancelled. Um, a Met Office snow warning remains in force uh, on Wednesday and Thursday over a slightly smaller area, but still covering millions in uh, in places such as Greater Manchester, Liverpool and Northern Ireland as well. So, uh, yes, it's getting really cold. And uh, to be honest, this last, I think, couple of weeks was not as bad, considering it was, uh, you know, New Year's, January, uh, one of the coldest times of the year usually but uh, um, the weather has been quite nice to us but uh, it's it's getting it's getting worse and it will keep getting worse for the next few weeks at least so be prepared to stay warm um, on on the other side there is um, news about the Hamas and Israel uh, conflict which is which has reached a hundred days today and 100 days ago um, you know the pre- unthinkable happened in is- Israel as well, uh, which was the attack on seventh uh, of October, and uh, since then it's been hundred day, hundred hundred days. Yep. Uh, the the attack which um, happened in kibbutz, a military base, and border towns, uh, accustomed to rockets attacks from Gaza, and overwhelmed by the scale of Hamas incursion. Um, so the they are also well not celebrating but I would say like marking the hundred day um, mark that uh, yeah. since this conflict has started. Mm. Absolutely, um, a video journalist from the Caribbean television channel Al Ghad was killed in the Gaza Strip on Sunday in a strike that the channel blamed on Israeli army. Um, in a post on X, the station said. Uh, that it was announcing with a heavy heart that Yazan al-Zuwaidi was murdered by Israeli fire. 
this according to agency France Press reports. In addition to Zubaydi, at least 82 other journalists and media professionals, the vast majority of, uh, of them are Palestinians, have been killed since the start of the Israeli-Gaza war on 7th October, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. The United Nations said last week it was very concerned by the high death toll of media workers. The International Criminal Court said it was investigating potential crimes against journalists, journalists during the war. Um, the latest coming in from uh, the um, United States on this conflict is that the White House has said that it's the right time for Israel to scale back its military offensive in the Gaza Strip as Israeli leaders again vowed to press ahead with their offensive against Hamas. The comments expose the growing differences between the close allies on the 100th day of the war on Sunday. Uh, this according to Associated Press. The White House National Security Spokesman, um, uh, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, told the U.S. network CBS that the Israeli, that the U.S. Uh, government had been speaking to Israel about a transition to low-intensity operations in Gaza. We believe it's the right time for the transition, and we're talking to them about doing that. The comments came a day after the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a televised address on Saturday that the war against Hamas would continue until the end until total victory. We are continuing the war, he said, until we achieve all of our goals, eliminating Hamas, returning all of our hostages and ensuring that Gaza will never again constitute, constitute a threat to Israel, he said. The war has sent tensions soaring across the region with Israel trading fire almost daily with Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group, while Iranian-backed militant militias attack U.S. targets in Syria and Iraq. In addition, Yemen's Houthi rebels have been targeting international shipping, drawing airstrikes from, airstrikes from the U.S. and the U.K. Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrullah, said his group would not stop until a ceasefire was in place for Gaza. An Israeli footballer who displayed a message referring to the Israeli Gaza war during the match in Turkey has been arrested, according to the reports in Turkish media. After scoring um, a goal for his team against um, against Trab uh, Trab against Trabz uh, Spor, Segev Jeskel revealed a message that read "100 days, seven um, slash ten on a bandage on his left wrist." Earlier. On Sunday, the country's justice minister announced an investigation into Jehaskel over the incident for suspected incitement to hate and after his club sacked him over the matter. The Turkish justice minister Yilmak, um, Yilmaz Tung said in a post, the Antalya Public Prosecutor's Office has opened a, a judicial investigation against Israeli footballer for the public incitement to hate due to his odious celebration in favor of the massacre committed by Israel in Gaza. Um, and um, meanwhile, going back across the Atlantic, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has posted an, uh, on social media that 100 days of the cav captivity in Gaza is far too long and the U.S. will not rest until all hostages were freed. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Uh, a very quick up, um, update of the topics that we shall be discussing. So the first topic, which we shall start in in about a minute's time, actually, um, is about the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and um, uh, some 
some attributes um, of his personality, some facets of his uh, personality, and we shall be focusing on um, how he treated others and um, uh, um, his kindness and his um, uh, his attribute of forgiveness. And uh, in the second segment, starting at about 8.15 a.m., we shall be talking about the very critical need for peace, global peace, in 2024 as things seem to be worsening all across the world. So without further ado, um, uh, let's go right into the first topic of the morning. Uh, Imam Manan, what are we discussing? Yes, as you mentioned, uh, we, in this first segment, we will be focusing on three important aspects of the life of the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, which are love for humanity and the essence of forgiveness. And lastly, his belief and his faith in Allah the Almighty. Um, and, uh, you know, to start off with his love for humanity, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, treated everybody as its own with kindness and taught his companions to do likewise. Um, it's just, uh, it has been written by many like uh, non-Muslim writers as well that the fact that uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was able to change the, you could say, the religion of Saudi Arabia at that time, about 1400 years ago. This itself is, is a miraculous thing. Because if you look at the state of Saudi Arabia in that time, it was one of the worst places to be in terms of religion, in terms of morality, and also in terms of uh, um, compassion and love for humanity, in fact. And uh, the, just, just, the, just the fact that he was, able to <clears throat> he was able to preach to those Arabs at that time, which were considered uh, one of uh, you know, the lowest people of their time, and every kind of uh, immorality was being committed. Children were being killed. I mean, daughters were being buried. And if you, I mean, read the history, the the time it, it was crying for a prophet to come because the situation was so bad. And this itself is, is one of the um, truthfulness of the Prophet Muhammad being for, sent from God Almighty. Uh, in these Uncertain times, it is easy for individuals to, you know, succumb to anger and harbor animosity towards those with differing views, and people find themselves making adverse adversaries very quickly. And a sense of consideration, and empathy for others is gradually eroding in our society. And generally speaking, the you know talks about religion and peace are going up and down; they're fluctuating. But as a general trend, it is decreasing people were more religious if you go back a couple of decades people would have more uh, I mean just look at like for example the British government there was a lot more influence of the monarchs in, in earlier times and generally p people are going towards uh, a more political world there's more injustice um, if but the biggest example I think in, in today's age is the Israel and Gaza conflict uh, humanity is just you know, fading away. The surge of hate speech and racism is becoming more prominent and fostering an environment where disagreements lead to heated conflicts and uh, divisive tension. Yet the exemplary life of our beloved master, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, stands as a testament to a love so profound that God Almighty 
forever immortalized the affection and empathy he held not only for Muslims but for all of humanity. In a verse of the Holy Quran, it is stated in Surah Ashura, Happily you will grieve thyselves to death because they believe not. Right. Um, thank you very much for that introduction, Imam Anand. Let's now go straight to our first guest for this segment. And uh, it is Imam Mujib Mirza, who is actually the Imam of uh, the mosque in Southall. So thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, uh, really uh, a pleasure to have you. Um, we are talking... Um, we are talking this morning about the uh, characteristics of um, the Holy Prophet Islam, different facets of his personality. Um, it would be really helpful if you could maybe narrate some stories of how he treated people from other religions. Yes, definitely. So one of the misunderstandings when it comes to the Holy Prophet is that he was a prophet for the Muslim world and he brought Islam and that's pretty much it. Which is actually not true. Uh, he, our belief is that he was a mercy for mankind, and he was a mercy for everybody, and he didn't have any animosity, any any kind of hatred against anybody else's religion. What he came to do was to propagate the message of true Islam or oneness of God, and that's pretty much it. He did not come to foster any kind of hate or any kind of uh, ill against any other religion. He did have a theological difference when it came to other religions, but in 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 relation to human beings, he never had any any differences, and so much so that he treated everybody with the same respect and love and harmony. And we see that across his life, um, before his time of uh, prophethood, there was a committee formed which was <clears throat> there to ensure that everyone's rights are meet are met. Uh, it was called Hilfu Fazul, and he was a member of that committee. And the whole idea of this uh, committee was to make sure those people whose rights have been taken, doesn't matter what religion they're from, this group of people would ensure that their rights are met and their rights are respected as it would be for anyone else's. And this had nothing to do with the religion. So this was even before his prophethood. When we look at his prophethood, even then we see that when he was heavily persecuted in Makkah, there was no until he had been told to take to do migration. Before that, he was heavily persecuted. He went through so much suffering, but never did he raise a finger at anyone um, or or say anything against anybody in terms of religion. He he did have an issue with the ideology of believing in many gods, but his message was to believe in one God, and that's all he did. He was. He was there to propagate that message, and that's pretty much it. When you talk about humanity, he, when he did become a prophet, he went to different villages, different towns to spread that message. And at, at places, he was given a very harsh treatment. And what was his response? It wasn't um, some form of violence or hate. It was love and respect, and so much so that one, once it happened, he went to a village and town where he was thrown stones and so much so there was blood coming through his head all the way to his feet and an angel came and asked that would you want us to crush these people between these two mountains and he said no maybe if they're not believing in my message their progeny or their future generation will believe in my message so he had a lot of love and compassion for mankind and that's because of the fact that he was 
he was sent as a mercy for mankind, and this is what we believe as the Ahmadi Muslim community. Thank you, Imam Mujib. Uh, just, just building on that, um, how can we in today's day and age, you know, where we see we are seeing conflicts like the Israel-Gaza war, um, follow the footsteps of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and promote love and respect uh, between each other? You see, it's a very this question is a very vast question because what's happening in the Middle East is going to have to do with religion and such. It's, it's a very geopolitical situation um, and it's very. Uh, demographic in terms of what, the, what they're trying to gain and all that. It's got nothing to do with religion. And we as Muslims, we condemn both sides for violence and uh, hatred. But what we can learn from the life of the Holy Prophet and, and his message is that uh, there has to be true justice for us to have peace. And also, we need to believe in a higher entity, i.e. God, who is the all mighty and wise, and we need to believe in the fact that we as humans have to emulate his attributes, whether it's being gracious, whether it's being merciful, whether it's being just. And until and unless we understand that we as human beings are here to become those people who are, in a way, emulating God's attributes and have to become those godly people who are able to do true justice, who are able to show mercy, who are able to forgive, we will not have peace. And that's why, if you look at the messages of His Holiness, Hazrat Mr. Masurah, the fifth category and the Muslim community, he always, the message he gives is that we need to understand that without God, we cannot have peace. Why that is? Because God has those attributes which we are told to follow and emulate and until we understand that concept it's very hard for us to become those people who are truly just now the situation in the middle east what we can learn is that the holy prophet was that perfect example where he followed god's teaching where he followed god's commandments and he became that perfect being where he emulated those attributes of god's virtue if we within ourselves can also do the same we'll be much better and I think that's something we can learn. And also, there are many learnings from the time of the Prophet whether his engagement in, in, in defensive wars, how he went about that, we can learn a lot from there as well, how he made sure that no, no kids would be harmed, no, uh, no uh, women would be harmed, no scholarly people, those people of uh, religious uh, clerics heard, uh, and also the places of worship will not be damaged. And if we were to follow those footsteps, or those guidance which the Holy Prophet gave when it came to war, uh, majority of the conflicts that we see these days will not even happen. So that's what I would have to say on this. Mm. And uh, if uh, you can maybe um, speak a little bit about uh, the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, treated uh, prisoners of war and uh, how he acted in, in situations of war, um, you know, emanating that, that compassion for humanity? That's a very good question because most of sometimes people actually misread this as well. Islam is actually the only religion which has such a beautiful teaching when it comes to prisoners of war. No other society or even in today's day and age, prisoners are given that many rights. I'll give you a small example. In Talmud Holy Prophet, according to the teaching of Quran, the Holy Prophet would allow the prisoners to be freed if they were able to buy themselves out of their um, um, 
punishment. And also, if they were able to teach others, for example, if a prisoner had a skill of whether it's knowledge or any kind of skill, and if he was able to pass that skill on to somebody else, he would become free. So there were so many different ways of becoming free from being this prisoner of war that we do not see that in today's age. <clears throat> and that's the compassion that Islam gives to prisoners that uh, they have done wrong, but once they've served their punishment, they can go back into society. And there are so many ways. And we are looked at, or sadly, sometimes Islam is looked at as a religion where uh, we we promote prisoners of war, when that's not the case at all. Um, so yeah, that would be my answer to your question in relation to prisoners of war. What was the second part of the question? I didn't, I didn't follow that. Uh, yeah, it was just how how um, we can emanate and, and use that teaching and apply in in today's age as well. Uh, fairly simple. We follow what uh, the teaching of the Holy Quran is in relation to how an Islamic society should be run. And if we can do that, then I guess we will have peace uh, across the world. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Imam uh, Majib Mirza. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, you just uh, very eloquently um, pointed out the beauty of the Holy Prophet, and uh, which we will be discussing further as well. Thank you so much for uh, joining us in the morning, and have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Peace be upon you. Yeah, so that was Imam Majib Mirza, uh, who is... Um, uh, an imam in in the South Hall Mosque, and uh, right. he I think made some really uh, beautiful examples uh, and uh, um, related it to today's age as well. How we can uh, act on that teaching, and uh, how how the teaching of the Holy Prophet and the teaching of Islam is, um, you know, perfect for every age, every era. Yes, and it's uh, you know it's it's a shame really, and it's so unfortunate that. Uh, what the majority of world has been um, made to understand about the personality of the Holy Prophet, the beautiful personality, uh, the exemplary personality of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him of Islam, is entirely different uh, from who he actually was. The caricature that is built of him, um, the stories that have been created about him, um, and the narrative that um, that has been spread, um, and then um, unfortunately, sp- uh, uh, totally uh, well spread like wildfire, I should say, in in the mainstream media and social media, is uh, is actually diametrically opposed to who he really was, hmm. who was a really kind person. He was, you know, he he he. Uh, he was mercy for mankind. He was sent as Rahmatullah Alameen, which is the Arabic term, which actually trans- broadly translates as mercy for mankind. And the, and that is the personality that he actually encompassed. That's the man that he really was. And he has he had so many facets to his, um, his personality. Let's talk more about that um, with another imam in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And that um, is our imam, Raza um, uh, Sahib, who is a missionary in our Croydon Mosque. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the breakfast show. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. Good morning, um, uh, Imam. How are you doing this morning? 
Alhamdulillah, all good, perfect. How are you guys? Excellent. All right. Uh, well, the sun's about to come out, so I guess it uh, it should get brighter pretty soon. <laughs> um, we are talking this morning about the Holy Prophet of Islam, and we're talking about uh, his uh, his personality and the various facets of his uh, technology uh, of his uh, personality. Um, one of his um, uh, his qualities or attributes was forgiveness, and love for humanity. Can you talk us through these two aspects of his uh, personality? What, um, how he manifested those attributes? Of course. Um, this is something, again, in, when it comes to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, everything that he did, everything that he stood for was in light of what the Holy Quran um, has said. I mean, he was the one who received uh, the revelation of the Holy Quran. He was the first one who would know about the verses that were revealed and of course he had to be the first one to live them by his example. So when the Holy Quran speaks about reformation, I mean there's always two ways to reform people. One is of course the one that we're talking about through love, through forgiveness, through um, showing them the, the soft side of things. And this is exactly what he lived and what he practiced. When we look at the early life of uh, his uh, apostleship, his 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 mission, his his appointment as a, as the prophet of God Almighty, there was a lot of rejection in in the city of Mecca. So nobody actually wanted to listen to him. There was a handful of early Muslims. So what do prophets do when their mission or their message is not heard in in the town of their birth? they go to other towns and preach the message of God Almighty to, to the people in the surrounding towns. So there's a town called Taif, which is not too far away from, from Mecca. He went to the city of Taif. He preached to the chieftains of, of Taif that this is the message of Islam, and I would like to get ready to, to talk to the people of Taif and tell them about it. Now, there's one thing about saying, you know, you know, uh, we're okay, we don't want to listen. But this is not where they stopped. So these chiefs of Taif, they didn't just say, we don't want to hear your message, please leave. But they sent a group of you know, vagabonds, a, a group of boys after him, and they pelted stones at the Prophet. And it wasn't just that he, as soon as he crossed the doors or the 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 the, the borders of Taif, and they they just turned back or they left. No, they chased him for many many miles out 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 of the city, and this was one of those incidences where we who have great love for the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon it, we who consider him to be, as you mentioned, alamin, the a mercy for mankind, a, a perfect role model for everyone. When we read about this story. It makes us emotional every single time. So the, the, the narrations go that when those boys, they turned around and they left a prophet uh, on home be peace, it says that the blood that had came out of the wounds or the wounds that they had, they had inflicted on him were so great that his shoes were filled with blood. And, I mean... That itself, to imagine that these are a group of boys, they're chasing him, they're stoning him the whole entire time. And then he gets this opportunity. He goes to this 
this one place there's a garden and and he sits down and in that moment the messenger receives an angel so god almighty sends an angel the angel of um uh, the mountains and that angel comes to him and he said oh prophet of god if you want because it, it, geographically uh, looking Taif was located between two big mountains <clears throat> and these are like solid rock mountains and he asks the prophet this this question that if you want after all of what happened to you if you want i can crush Taif i can just make these mountains disappear they will fall onto Taif and Taif would be as if it never existed now imagine somebody does this to you of course i think the first emotion that we would have is rage is revenge to take revenge and have anger um on 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 this entire nation basically for the prophet of god he was different so this this aspect of forgiveness this aspect of reformation through love and the love for mankind but all of this is trumped by his love for god almighty the only reason and he said i do not want you to do this so addressing that angel i don't want you to crush i don't want you to kill all of time because one day the next generation or people from these people they will be the ones who will worship the one true god which is why i do not want you to kill them and it turned out that's exactly what happened and then i mean there's his whole life basically 23 years of persecution 20 23 years of of mocking of of attacks from all sides it, it all culminates in the time when he returns back to mecca as as someone who had the influence who had the power who had the authority and who had the right to take revenge from all of his enemies people who were responsible for the death of his uncle people who were responsible for the death of many of his friends from early muslims who converted and people who were responsible for the death of his as well as unborn child now these people they come to him or he actually goes to them as as someone who's victorious he conquers mecca after 23 years he goes back to his town that had driven him out and that was bent on on killing him on on ending this early mission of islam as soon as possible and they're all standing in front of him and now he has to give a verdict hmm. and the people ask and he asked the people that oh people of makkah how what do you think i should do how how do you think i should treat you yeah. and now even those people knew about the forgiveness of the prophet even they knew how much of a forgiving person he was so i mean to, to kind of smart answer they said we want you to treat us like joseph treated his brothers hmm. and what did prophet joseph peace be upon him do with his brothers he forgave them hmm. because they wronged him as well and so he said la tatriba alaykum alayhim today there is no blame on you go about business i forgive you and again those were war criminals you could say one of them um habar who was responsible for assassinating his uncle hamza on on the commands of of hind who was the wife of abu sufyan one of the chiefs of mecca he took out his liver he took out the intestines he 
he basically mm-hmm. mutilated his body. And the Prophet, when he saw him, or when he was brought in front of him, he didn't say, oh, you've done this, you've mm-hmm. done that, just never, go go away, I don't want you to see you. He asked them, right. Hal, do, is it possible for you? Habar, could you, could you do me this favor? Is it possible for you not to come in front of my eyes? Because every time I see you, I'm reminded of my of my uncle Hamza and the things that you've done to him. Hmm. And that if was I can, just a glimpse of his nature. Absolutely, and I, you know, absolutely. Uh, but the question that I think arises, or would have arisen in um, in many people's mind, probably listening to this, is. You know how is then he? Um, how is it that he is depicted as a warmonger in the West? You you were talking about a very different person. You're talking about an entirely different person, an entirely different personality. Whereas in the West, generally the perception is that he was a warmonger, that he uh, started wars. Did he actually start any wars? So absolutely not. This is something I think, to be very frank, to be very honest with you, the example of today's Muslims, unfortunately, plays a great role. Mm. The way we behave, the way we portray, I mean, I cannot blame anyone who doesn't know anything about Islam. I don't, I can't blame anyone who has never picked up a copy copy of the Holy Quran, who has never picked up a biography of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, and who doesn't know anything about his life. When he sees on TV, when he hears from other people, when he reads the newspaper that in the name of Islam, so-called Muslims are committing atrocities, so-called Muslims are are wielding with the with words like Sharia and 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 Quran and punishment and infidels and gossips and whatnot, all of that will play into their minds, which is already being being bombarded by negative portrayals of Muslims, negative portrayal of Islam, and then of course the noble character of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Never for a moment would you find any example where he instigated wars, where he started wars, where he took the first step, or where he went out and killed innocent people. I mean, in today's day and age, when you are on social media, when we're talking about war, the war that is being committed right now against the innocent people of, of, of Palestine, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Muslim community, in one of his sermons, I mean, he mentions this for the past 15 weeks, he's been he's been talking about this this um, this conflict, and he's reminding people of the true teachings of Islam. What is that? First of all, pray. Our biggest and you know most powerful weapon is the weapon of prayer. And then second, he's also highlighted the rules of engagement that Islam set out not yesterday, not a century ago, no, 14 centuries ago, one more than 1,400 years ago. The Holy Prophet of Islam, when he came to war for it, he said. When you go out, when you're forced to go out and to fight another people, it's fine. But you need to fight those who are actively engaged in war. Do not kill the elderly. Do not kill children. Do not even touch uh, clerics, people of any faith, people of any standing in any faith. So that includes priests, that includes rabbis, that includes Buddhist monks, and you name it. And he also went as far as to say that do not cut down fruit trees. I mean, who does that? Nowadays, we have mm. indiscriminate bombing. It doesn't matter what it is or... Exactly. Forget in, about trees. In, in the so-called civilized age. The civilized, This is what we're talking about 1,400 yeah. years ago. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, so, so in essence, you're saying that um, yes, it's it's really the uh, the bad example of uh, of some Muslims uh, around the world. But uh, dare I also say that um, this does find place in both in Oriental um, literature as well as in mainstream media. This narrative that you know he was. Uh, a warmonger. We've obviously seen, and only in recent years, we've seen that uh, you know there have been caricatures uh, drawn, you know, cartoons made, and um, and whatnot. So, um, so you're saying that uh, essentially all wars uh, that were fought during his time were defensive. Would that be correct yes. to narrate? And because look again, what I said, the first thing that I said is his life was based on the Quran. If if there was anything in his life, it was based on the teachings of Islam. It was based on a revelation that he received directly from God Almighty. So in the Holy Quran, when it comes to warfare, it says that permission to fight is given to those against uh, war has been waged. Those who only said that, you know, their only crime was that they believed in God Almighty. And then, this, this, ba- this is based on the history of Islam, that for many years, in the early period of Islam, the, the, the companions would come up to the Prophet and say, Oh, Prophet of Allah, this is, this is too much. We're, we're, we're getting slaughtered left, right, front, and center. Allow us to, to defend ourselves. And he said, no. Why? Because God has not given permission yet. And then, the, the, only, the, the reason was not just because of the time or the crimes, no. Every avenue had to be availed before. This is the last resort. So the last, last option that you should be given of a, a physical war of, of that jihad that everybody's talking about with a sword. Again, I'll come to this in just a bit. So the last option was your physical defense. What did the Prophet do? So he tried to explain to them. It didn't work. Then he migrated. He sent a group of Muslims to another country say, you know what, you can practice your faith over there. You can live in peace. The the ruler is just. The ruler is fair. So go do and practice there. But that didn't work either because the the Meccans or the 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 disbelievers they came after them over there as well. Then what happened? The last option was he migrated himself with his entire community, so no Muslims left, to the city of Medina. The, Medi- the Medinites welcomed him. They approached him. So he was in Medina, he was minding his own business, not interfering with what's happening with the Meccans. But the Meccans were not happy about that either. So they attacked the Muslims. In the first battle, the Battle of Badr, if you just look at the odds, the numbers, if I was to attack someone, then I would have the numbers on my side, wouldn't I? Hmm. The numbers there were 313 Muslims against a 1,000 non-Muslims. Hmm. So it's one to three. The odds were one to three. Nobody in his right mind would attack another nation were they well knowing equipped? that he's outnumbered. Oh, those those 313? Yeah. That's, that's, another, that's another thing to look at. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they had one camel or one animal in the whole army. Yeah. They were not soldier trained soldiers compared to the Meccans. They were just normal, ordinary people, including you know teenagers, even or a lot of peasants. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's not a frightening army. That's not someone that, that you could impress. 
that your opponent, but you know, we're we're going to we're going to win this. No, nobody knew. Nobody Wh- knew. Nobody which was, that. I think, must also be said, facing a very well-equipped army of one thousand people who were yes. battle-hardened, battle-ready, full equipment and materials, um, and coming all the way from Mecca to uh, to attack this army. That's that's exactly what it is. I mean, they had the armor, they had the swords, they had the skills, they had the these were skilled and trained soldiers, professional soldiers who would do this on on a regular basis. But then again, on the other side, you had those people who migrated because they couldn't live in peace in a city they were born in. And that's one thing. So, and then the second thing about the jihad, this misconception, again, this is one of the words that is mm. that's thrown around uh, willy-nilly here uh, from people. Oh, they want to do jihad, they want to do jihad. Well, what exactly is jihad? Jihad is an Arabic word that ultimately means to struggle. Right. And what, what are the things that we struggle with? I mean, I just had to wake up my kids for school. <laughs> and that's a struggle. If you remember waking up with them, it's a struggle. But yes. that's a struggle with your own ego, with your own self. Mm. And I believe, I kid you not, this is the greatest struggle. So the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has mentioned, and for us as Muslims, this, anybody can pick up a sword. That's that's not a struggle. If you are in a situation where you are forced, but to fight with yourself on a daily basis for the rest of your life, to not commit sin, to not lie, to not commit fornication, Imam Rizab, if I can interrupt you, sorry. We are coming up to the 8 o'clock news break, and this is something very, very important, uh, you know, jihad and uh, how jihad again is portrayed in the mainstream media is something that I think we must address as as part of this discussion on the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So if I can just request you to stay online um, for a couple of minutes, and then we will restart this discussion after the uh, news break. Thank you. So that uh, so we do have uh, Imam Raza Ahmed uh, on the line with us. We will continue this discussion on jihad after this break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 15th of January 2024. The time is 8.02 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam Usman Manan live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. This morning we we're talking about the personality of the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the beautiful personality of his, which, which um, in reality is pretty much diametrically opposed to what um, we find the narrative we find in the mainstream media, in social media, um, and uh, I dare say even in the literature of um, uh, both some Christian authors as well as some Muslim authors, unfortunately. And um, we've uh, talked about um, um, he, unfortunately, is um, uh, has been displayed in the mainstream media, in the Western mainstream media, especially as somebody who's, who, um, uh, who was a warmongering general and we were able to dispel that um, particular allegation in the first uh, half hour of that show uh, of this show and if that's something that you've missed then i would um, strongly recommend that you go into soundcloud after this show 
and listen to the recording. Before we went on to the break, we were talking to Imam Raza, uh, who is Imam of the MD Muslim community in Croydon. And uh, he was talking to us about jihad. Um, now, jihad is, again, a term which is uh, which has been picked up by the mainstream media and is used heavily against uh, Muslims. Imam Reza, if you're still on the line, we uh, we were talking about jihad. We went from the break, but somebody who may be joining in right now, what actually is jihad? Can you repeat? And uh, what is the true spirit of jihad? Okay, so <clears throat> as I mentioned before the break, jihad uh, is an Arabic word, and the, the 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 meaning in a nutshell means to struggle. So in the narrations of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we find that there's three types of of jihads, right? So the first one, uh, jihad asghar, and then kabir and akbar. So the lowest one, um, which is defined by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is actually the the physical the physical fighting or the physical defense mm. that is the lowest form of of struggle then above that jihad kabir is one where you invite people to the right path where you invite people for, let's say for the propagation of islam to to the religion of islam with the word of god with the holy quran and, and with the help of others and then the, the jihad akbar the, the the greatest of all the jihads which there's nothing about is the the struggle with your own self the daily struggle that we have so when it comes to let's say for me as a muslim the, the to wake up in the morning to go for morning prayer or to fast in in the month of ramadan or to um not lie not commit fornication not commit uh, shirk which is associating partners with god almighty all of these things where that we struggle with anyways in our daily lives and you don't have to be a muslim every person who 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 lives a life of of goodness who lives a life of morality we have a struggle to fight every single day that in the face of someone in, in the face of any difficulty how do you behave do you show your side and the side which is right or do you let yourself succumb to the passions of of uh, of your of your ego so you uh, i mean I, I i would dare to say that a lot of people out there who don't even believe in islam who do not even the muslim people who are actually you know beating this drum all jihad 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 on a daily basis yourself without even knowing it's just a term that is used. There's a there's a saying in in German basically, which translated meaning that you're fighting with your own. Um, they call it Schweinehund, meaning <laughs> it's a combination of a dog and 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 a, and a pig. <laughs> so the the worst of your inclinations, the worst of your passions, you fight with that on a daily basis. So that's basically what what jihad actually is. There's nothing about oh, we're going to take over the country, we're going to rampage through Europe. None of that. That was never the intention of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon That was never the intentions of Muslims anyways, as long as they stuck to the true teachings of Islam. Thank you, Imam Raza. Uh, and lastly, um, uh, Imam Mujib also touched on this. Uh, tell us a little bit about his love for God Almighty and, and the strength of his belief in God and maybe some examples of that. This is a this is a love story, a, a way that you probably never heard or never never read before. 
love story that that transcends all kind of bounds, all kind of um, levels that that I've ever seen or read before. This is a man who, before he knew his beloved, he knew there was a beloved. He knew he was there. Because before the 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 him him being commissioned by God Almighty, there were almost 360, 365 idols in in the vicinity of the Kaaba, the the Black Cube in in Mecca. And from a very young age, the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he knew that this this cannot be. I cannot have 360 plus gods. I cannot be worshiping all of them. And then. He, at, at a certain age, just before the age of 40, he would seclude himself to the cave Hira. Now, this is, I think, two or three miles from, from the city of Mecca. It's located on the hill. It's very difficult to get to. And he would seclude himself for days and days there and somehow, I wouldn't say worship God Almighty because he didn't really know at that time because God had not revealed himself. But he would meditate. He would think. He would... He would do anything that would deviate his attention from these multiple gods. So in his nature, not to commit this kind of shirk, which is associating partners with God Almighty. And then comes the day where Angel Gabriel appears. God Almighty sends him. And the angel says, recite. Iqra, recite. The first word ever to be revealed and part of the Quran. Now, many people say that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said, I cannot read. I'm, I'm not able to read. Yeah, that you, you will find this in, in, in the history books as well. But the real reason why he said, Ma'ana biqarin, that I, I am not going to read, I, I cannot read, was when he, when, when Angel Gabriel said that, read, he said, no, I, I will not read. He said, read again. He said, this happened three, four times, this back and forth. And then, Gabriel grabbed him by the shoulders. He shook him and he said, Read in the name of your Lord. The Lord that created you out of nothing. The Lord that, that gave you and gave you knowledge. Gave you knowledge through the pen. And the Lord that taught you things that you did not know. Now the prophet was ready to read. Why? He didn't just all of a sudden learn how to read and within split seconds. No. It was because he knew at that moment, okay, that is the God that I was waiting for. This is the Lord that I'm ready to read in the name of. And then his whole life, basically, what was he not offered? He was offered wealth. He was offered women. He was offered power. Things that we in our life aspire after. Things that drive us on a daily basis. We want power. We want money. We want the goods of this life. And he was given that. Put it right there in front of you. Take it. Take it all. We'll make you our king. We'll give you the most beautiful women in the, of the country. We'll, we'll, we'll give you all the money that you want. The only thing we're asking you is stop talking about your God. Stop talking about one God because you're ruining it for all of us. And what was his answer? This is, again, this relationship with God that he had, this love for God that he had. And it's, and it's, and it's both ways. God loved him the same way. He said, I will protect you. If people were going to harm you, I am going to be there for you. And he knew that. So that's why he said that, look, you can put the sun in my right hand and you can put the moon in my left. I'm not going to stop unless and until God tells me to stop. 
and then we fast forward to the last last moments of his life. When we're on our deathbeds, we're thinking about our loved ones. We're thinking about our legacy. We're thinking about, you know, leaving a well behind and whatnot. The prophet of God was thinking about prayer. Constantly, he would ask, "Is it time for prayer?" And he would, he he would, he was taken to the mosque by two of his companions, and his feet were dragging on the floor. But he would not forsake his duty towards God, his connection towards God of prayer. And again, you fill that entire life of his 63 years, you fill it with the love of God, any way, any shape. All the persecution that we were talking about before, everything that he endured, he, he had nothing to, to gain from that. He didn't do it for his own self. He did it, one, for the sake of God, and then for the sake of his creation. And that's how prophets are. Excellent. Thank you so very much uh, for that detailed uh, take on this um, uh, on this very important attribute. And I and I really love the way you you, you put it, which is uh, you know this love story. I think there is absolutely no better way to uh, no better phrase or term to actually to to actually describe the relationship he had with God Almighty. Thank you very much. Um, Imam Reza, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, all the best with waking up uh, your children uh, and dropping off uh, uh, them to school. <laughs> and uh, all the very best with your endeavors. Uh, may peace be with you. So that was Imam Reza, who is an imam of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Croydon, uh, talking to us about uh, different uh, facets of the um, beautiful personality of the Holy Prophet of Islam, um, the actual personality of the Holy Prophet of Islam, rather than the caricature which is built, which has been built by um, uh, the Western media, and um, as he uh, clearly pointed out, by some Muslims as well. Unfortunately, a, a very small minority of Muslims. Um, and we also talked about uh, the concept of uh, jihad. There, I want to address um, a couple of. Um, uh, allegations that are uh, very often um, lay, very often laid on the prophet of uh, Islam. So one was that uh, that he started wars. So that's something that we talked about again um, with Imam Reza. And it's very clear if you if you read history objectively that uh, all the wars that were fought by him were defensive wars. He um, uh, he was persecuted um, his uh, followers were, uh, were were maimed were killed in Mecca and what did he do he migrated to Medina and after he migrated um, to Medina he was followed he was followed all across all the way to Medina and then um, not and that wasn't uh, sufficient for the people of Mecca then they um, uh, put up an army together and attacked the ragtag army of Muslims as we described in the first battle which was the Battle of Badr. So uh, yeah, the first thing that has to be said is that all the wars that were fought during his time were defensive wars. The other is that he, the other allegation that is usually um, bandied around in the media is that he killed 700 Jews of uh, Jews of uh, the tribe Banu Reza in Medina. Uh, that is also an absolute lie, and um, 
I would urge your readers to go to the website www.trueislam.co.uk. That's www.trueislam, one word, .co.uk and read about both of these issues. Um, uh, the long and short of uh, that particular um, issue is that um, those Jews that, uh, or that tribe actually, um, rebelled against the treaty that had been signed with the Muslims. And the Holy Prophet of Islam actually gave them an option. He said that, who do you want to decide your fate? And they chose another person within uh, within the Muslim um, of Medina. Um, and it was there because they thought that they had an alliance with the, uh, with the, with that particular tribe and the head of that tribe, and they chose the head of that tribe as the person who would arbiter or decide their fate as a as a result of the rebellion that they had actually uh, uh, manifested. And they, you know, they, there was full agreement at that time, uh, e- even among themselves, that yes, uh, they. Um, they actually rebelled against um, uh, against the Muslims and breached the um, the agreement that they had actually reached with the Muslims, and therefore um, there was a punishment which uh, uh, which was to be given to them. What that punishment was was actually um, going to be decided by this person. And Holy Prophet Islam said, "You do you want me to make that decision? Or do you want somebody else to make that decision?" And it was actually Hazrat Saad. Um, who was the leader of the um, Aus tribe of Medina, who was actually allied um, in pre-Islamic times to the the tribe of Banu Qureza, of Jews, and they chose him. And it was his decision that as a result of this clear conspiracy against Muslims in a very, very sensitive time of war, um, um, in full contravention of the agreement that they had signed with the Muslims, that they actually decided to go um, and um, and actually rebel um, against uh, uh, the Muslims, and that is uh, you know a very short summary. Let me, of let me just clarify in defense of uh, the companion as Assad that uh, his decision was not uh, his own opinion. He said, "Rather, I will judge from your own book, from the Torah." Correct. And uh, the Torah says that for the, the punishment for treachery and uh, this kind of act mm. is that your the men should be killed mm. the woman should be women and children and elderly should be exiled forever right and despite that the holy prophet um put in place leniency for this he said we we're not going to kill everyone mm. and even whilst this whole process was happening a few people a few Jews came to the holy prophet he said that Forgive us. We 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 don't want to be part of that group. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're we're sorry and forgive us. And the Holy Prophet forgave them. And for every single person who was being punished, the Holy Prophet gave them the option to ask for forgiveness. Just ask. But the those people were so stubborn. They said we're not even going to ask you for forgiveness. Mm. And that was the reason why these people were exiled. And uh, yes, yeah, so it was it was they kind of they would do anything. But listen to the Holy Prophet and and be judged by the Holy Prophet. Even Hazrat Saad himself said that you are so unfortunate. Had you chosen that man, meaning yeah. the Prophet, to judge between you, you would have all been forgiven today. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Very well made points. Absolutely. Um, uh, Imam Usman there. Right. Um, Before we move on to our next segment, I have yeah. uh, just one or two quotes from uh, non-Muslim writers yeah. and uh, 
who have written about the Holy Prophet. Right. Uh, there is a, a British theosophist and activist, Annie Besant. She wrote that it is impossible for anyone who studies the life of char and character of the great prophet of Arabia, who knows how he taught and how he lived, to feel anything but reverence for that mighty prophet, one of the great messengers of the Supreme. And another French poet and politician, his name is Lamartine, he wrote that never has a man set for, him, for himself, voluntarily or involuntarily, a more sublime aim, since this aim was superhuman, which was to subvert superstitions which had been imposed between man and his creator, to render God unto man and man unto God, to restore the rational and sacred idea of divinity amidst the chaos of the material and disfigured gods of idolatry. So these are writers um, which are not Muslim, which are writing about the Prophet. Uh, and lastly, one mention of uh, a very famous book as well, The Hundred, uh, where Michael H. Hart, he has compiled names of the hundred most influential people in history and has placed uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad at number one. And he says that many people will be surprised by my choice of Muhammad to lead the list of the world's most influential persons. Um, but he was the only man in history who was supremely successful in both religious and secular levels. Secular levels. So this is just showing a few few examples from non-Muslims that uh, what we are saying is not biased. Uh, if you look at the facts, you'll see that the Prophet Muhammad was, uh, I mean, very Absolutely. rightly said by Michael Hart that he was uh, religiously and secularly the most influential person on, in forever lived. Yeah, absolutely. Not only in modern times, but ever. So, no, no, thank you very much. I think that was, uh, that was a very, very um, uh, important quotes and uh, some very well-made points there. Um, so that was our discussion on, on the first topic. Um, our second topic today is about the need for peace in 2024 and beyond, um, shall I say. Um, I don't think that um, uh, this topic needs any further introduction um, than the fact that we we do we, we're seeing wars in Europe, war in Europe. We're seeing war in the Middle East. Uh, unfortunately, um, seems to be an um, uh, a conflict which seems to be expanding. Um, there are conflicts um, otherwise all across the world as well, and you know the world does seem to become to be um, uh, to becoming. A more dangerous place. Let's go straight to our first guest for this segment, who is uh, Jonathan Cohen, who's been the executive director of Conciliation Resources since 2016. Um, he joined Conciliation Resources in, in 1997 and was awarded OBE in 2007 by the British government for his services uh, to conflict prevention and conflict resolution in the Caucasus. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Uh, thank you ever so much. It's a delight to be with you. Likewise. So let me um, start by asking you, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, conciliation resources? What What is the mandate of um, your organization and what have you been doing? Yes, of course. So we're a, a charity, a non-governmental organization, and we this is actually our 30th year. And for the past three decades, we've been working in a number of conflict regions around the world. And our mandate is to work alongside people who are enduring violent conflict 
and to try to support them to find ways to prevent and resolve those conflicts. And we work sometimes at a political level supporting formal negotiations. Uh, more often than not, we work with community actors to try and support them to influence the way in which those formal talks uh, take place. And we also do quite a lot of analysis to understand the, the causes of conflict and to try and help people think through different strategies to, to transform their societies from situations of persistent violence and, and to try and create opportunities for more sustained and equitable development. Um, and we do this working in about, at the present time, working in about 15 or 20 countries around the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And how how does uh, conciliation resources approach peace building uh, differently to uh, to maybe some traditional methods? Uh, what kind of adaptive and alternative methods do you use, and how do you approach uh, this this aim? Yeah. Well, I think a, a lot of um, approaches to ending conflicts focus on top level political negotiations, and whilst it's really crucial to try and get ceasefires signed, to get peace agreements signed. Our approach is that those are essential but never sufficient to bring about peace. And we're always looking at how do you bring in people who are excluded, people whose perspectives aren't listened to. Um, And that means bringing in um, community actors. It means bringing in um, a whole range of perspectives, women's groups, um, different ethnic groups that are often marginalised and recognizing that you need to bring on board armed actors who are, are fighting against, um, often fighting against the, the systems and the peace, uh, and against the, 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 the powers that be. Um, and so I think we believe in what we talk about as an inclusive peace process, not mm-hmm. just an elite-centered approach to peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you give some examples of uh, you know any successful initiatives that have demonstrated uh, the organization's commitment uh, to yes, connecting people? Yeah, so I think a couple of good examples of, of where this happens is, is what we've done in the Somali regional state of Ethiopia or in Mindanao in the southern Philippines. And both of these were long-running uh, internal conflicts, civil wars, um, 20, 25 years in the case of the Somali regional state and 40 years in the case of the Philippines. And we, in, in the Somali regional state, we worked with some Kenyan politicians to, who acted as intermediaries between the Ogaden National Liberation Front and the government of Ethiopia. And it was a six-year process of talks uh, that led to the signing of a peace agreement in Asmara in 2018. And what we did was mm-hmm. we provided technical support to the ONLF. We provided technical assistance to the 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 Kenyan facilitators, but we also tried to work hard to bring in different perspectives. So we brought diaspora groups into the talks. We we brought uh, civil society actors in to bring their perspectives into the talks. In the Philippines, likewise, we were part of a process uh, called the International Contact Group, which involved quite an unusual hybrid peace process that involved four states, uh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, United Kingdom, and Japan, and four NGOs, ourselves being one of them, working alongside Malaysian facilitators of peace talks between the government of the Philippines and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And again, we were working hard to bring in the perspectives of indigenous people, to bring in the perspectives of women's groups, civil society actors. And there were some, something like 40 rounds of talks in that case. It was very different mm-hmm. processes, because in the Ogden there were very few direct talks. In the Philippines, there were 40 rounds of talks. But I think the, the, the point here is, how do you 
create an inclusive space in which different perspectives can be brought to the table, in which people can be challenged and feel comfortable to recognize what the other side needs in order to get to a peace process and what, what can compromise look like? Because it's very rare that one side will get everything it wants. And, and what we're looking to do is work to bring fresh perspectives and ideas into the process and help people move from violence to politics as a way of solving their conflict. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, how, how does your organization advocate for you know, people-centered policies and international peace building? And what specific strategies are employed to prioritize people uh, you know, in such uh, policies? Um, well, I think what's critical at the very beginning is, is to listen. Um, all too often, people who are affected by violent conflict have a deep understanding of what's happening, but they have very few resources to actually engage and to act. And so we try to work alongside uh, actors within their own community to, to do the analysis, to formulate strategies, and then to, to bring those perspectives to um, governments, intergovernmental organizations that have an ability to act. And there are different ways to do this. Sometimes it's really important to speak out, but we also sometimes talk about the need to speak in, to work together with uh, governments to, to bring about mm-hmm. change. And, and one really interesting example where we've done this um, has been with a group called the Trisector Group, which has been a, a group of NGOs, banks, and government. And in fact, the, the Muslim Charities Forum has been a really important partner in this. And it's been about trying to get policy to change, about um, working, transferring funds to situations of where there are violent conflicts in order to be able to work with groups there um, and address some of the risks of, of banks being very averse to um, having bank accounts for charities, especially Muslim charities, um, in areas of violent conflict because of counter-terrorism regulations. And we've been quite successful in, in working with, uh, through this tri-sector group to, to bring about some changes in approach and understanding of the nature of the problem. So sometimes it's really important to speak out and, and make a, a, a very loud public statement, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's really important to do it through quiet diplomacy and building relationships and, and through that bring about policy change. Yes. And uh, can I ask you uh, what what's your what work you're doing or um, uh, what policies or strategies you are uh, putting in place in terms of the Israel-Gaza conflict? Well, we ourselves don't work in the Middle East. We, mm-hmm. we I think one of the challenges for any relatively small NGO like ourselves is you have to have the expertise to work somewhere. You have to be able to work long-term and, and we believe in long-term accompaniment. Many of the places we've worked, Kashmir, the South Caucasus, um, these are situations where we've worked for, for 20, 30 years and, and they are of long duration and we have the expertise, we have the colleagues who can work there. And we, we don't have that in the Israel-Gaza situation. But mm-hmm. I think what's really crucial in a situation like that is how do you move from violence to political process? There's no question that the horrific things have been happening in the region and there's an appalling toll of death. And yet it's, it's a, a cycle of securitized responses to what needs to be seen as a political problem. And, and, and that sounds a bit dispassionate to sort of step back from some of the appalling humanitarian crisis at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be addressed and you need to, to end fighting. You need to, to create the space for political process. But in fact, sometimes you have political processes happening in the background alongside fighting. I think of what happened in Colombia, where the, the 
fighting between the, the government and the FARC continued for many years, but they also had a political process at the same time. Very different situation, and one needs to be careful to make comparisons. But I think in, until we find the space to have a political solution, um, it's tragically, I, I fear there will be a persistent uh, continuation of violence in the Middle East and in the Israel-Gaza uh, situation in particular. Mm, thank you. And, you know, we are talking about peace in 2024, not just uh, political peace, which is the usual understanding. In your opinion, what's when are you at peace? What's peace for you? Is it just that there's no wars, there's no fighting? Well, I think people talk about um, different types of peace, uh, negative peace, structural peace. I think clearly one has to start with an aspiration to bring uh, wars and, and violent conflicts where there is armed engagement to an end. But I think we also have to recognize that if you're not addressing the root causes of conflict, if you're not looking at why communities, why people have aspirations that are confounded by the, the structures around them, that will lead to a persistent risk that, that violence will permeate through society. And I think we need to look at the structures of our societies, think about the inequalities, think about those grievances and how they can be addressed. And, and without doing that, there's a risk that, that peace can be ephemeral. And, and we're very fortunate in this country to live in, in relative peace. But I think we have to be conscious that we live in a very violent world. There are more people displaced today than has ever been the case. More than 100 million people are displaced and refugees, which is an extraordinary statistic. And we face multiple crises. We see the risk of climate change exacerbating violent conflict. We, we see questions of displacement and, and migration, which I think are only going to get worse as, as climate change escalates. So we really need to rethink how it is we invest in supporting uh, peace building and, and the prevention of conflicts to get away from a securitized approach that always sees military responses as a way to address address uh, conflict and, and to, to think of more political uh, approaches and to think of, of approaches that address um, the, the deeper socio-economic problems that, that we observe. Jonathan, uh, in view of the thinking about the challenges that you've uh, just listed, and I would fully agree that uh, absolutely we are, I think, uh, at a very critical juncture in, in terms of where we are, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the geopolitics uh, of the world. Do you think the world at large is still living in oblivion and is oblivious to to these challenges, especially the mainstream media? Um, well, it depends what one calls the world at large. I mean, I think the reality is the world at large is the majority of people in the world who actually, an awful lot of them experience violent conflict. I think in the UK, yes, I think we are a little bit oblivious to some of the, mm. the problems. And the UK population is a very generous population by and large. When there are charity appeals and for humanitarian yes. disasters or, or earthquakes, it's extraordinary what, what people in this country do to, to provide money to support. Mm. The problem is we, we don't see enough money invested in, in things like preventing conflicts and building peace in advance of violence. We really struggle to raise money for what we do. And it's interesting what it costs to do our work. The, the peace process we supported in the Ogaden in the Somali regional states of Ethiopia over six years cost less than half the price of a tank. And that brought, helped bring to an end a 25-year conflict. And I think the challenge, you mentioned the media, the challenge of the media is it, it tends to, you know, there's an old say, saying, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. And the challenge of the media is it 
it very often sensationalizes or addresses um, violence as a, as, a, as a story. It's much harder to tell the story of the more nuanced, long-term, patient endeavors that it takes to build peace. And I think we've got to get better at telling the story of how people who are affected by violent conflict can take those painstaking steps to build peace and, and support them so that our wider society is, is prepared to commit to that kind of support. And we, we did a survey uh, several years ago looking at people's attitude to um, supporting, engaging with armed groups, for instance. And we found that there was, there was real support for um, doing this. Um, but it's finding better ways to tell the story so that you can translate that support into resources and, and greater political commitment. And finally, Jonathan, can you tell us uh, about your work in the Caucasus for which you won the OBE? Well, thank you. I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, so there are two conflicts in the Caucasus where we, in the South Caucasus, where we've worked for a long time, and a conflict between uh, Georgia and Abkhazia and the Armenian Azerbaijan conflict over Nagorno Karabakh. And, and uh, your listeners might um, be aware of the fact that um, last autumn there was renewed hostilities in, in and around Nagorno-Karabakh mm. and, and Azerbaijan um, retook the territory that it had lost in a, mm. in a war in the early 90s. Um, and that, was a, had led, that led to the displacement of more than 100,000 people. So it was a, a very difficult period. We've been working for a long time trying to bring people f- across the Georgian-Abkhazia divide and across the Armenian-Azerbaijani divide together sometimes through dialogue processes with, with political and social actors. We've done a lot of work with the media, helping people make films about the situation. We've also been doing, and those are cross, cross-conflict uh, collaborations, which are really hard to navigate, but have seen very courageous initiatives by local journalists. And we've also been trying to, to help people think through what can reconciliation mean? What, what is it about the historical memory that stops people finding a, a path to peace. And, and I think that's a real challenge because one of the things we observe in conflicts around the world is the way in which um, people's interpretation of what has happened can be very jaundiced and it can be very one-sided. And it's very difficult to recognize the aspirations of the other side as legitimate. You might not agree with them, but to have an aspiration for, for independence or for, for, for a different type of self-government. It's a legitimate aspiration. The question is, what are the processes through which those aspirations are pursued? And can they be pursued through political processes or do they get pushed into the terrain of violence? And we've been working with people to try and um, create spaces where there can be political conversations across divides. And that gets very difficult when... Um, military responses, for instance, in Ukraine, uh, the, the violent, the, the war there has created less space for discussion in the South Caucasus because people get drawn into, are you with Russia, are you with the West? Mm. And that, that can, can reduce the space for, for more nuanced debates about how do you create a, 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 a sort of mutually beneficial outcome. Jonathan, such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so very much for your time and uh, all the best with all the excellent um, endeavors. Peace be with you. Thank you ever so much. Bye-bye then. Bye-bye.
So that was Jonathan Cohen, who is the executive director at Consolation Resources, talking to us about his work and his thoughts on um, um, on the current state of affairs, actually, in, in the world and the need, uh, the critical need for establishing peace uh, around the world. Let me now go uh, straight to our last guest uh, of this morning, who is Sue Clayton. Sue is the chair of the Anglican Pacifist Fellowship and a committee member of the Week of Prayer for World Peace. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Um, if I could start by asking you, Sue, um, how is it that uh, that your organization intends to achieve this very important um, aspiration of peace and harmony across the world? Uh, well, just a little bit of background for your listeners. Uh, the Anglican Pacifist Fellowship was founded in 1937, just before the start of the Second World War. It was uh, initially to support the Anglican uh, member, uh, Anglican Christians who were going to take a stance of conscientious objection to war. And <clears throat> all these years on, we're a group within the Anglican Communion who reject war as a means of settling international disputes. We believe that peace and justice should be sought through nonviolent means. Uh, your previous speaker was saying a, uh, a lot about the fact that uh, peace building is not something that is covered very much in the media, although we hear a heck of a lot about war, especially in these last few months. But uh, APF does this through praying to educate people about peace and peace-building nonviolence and to act through campaigning and uh, working with others on various issues. So uh, what role do you believe should people play in promoting peace? within their communities? I think um, that individuals have a responsibility within their families, within their communities, to encourage people to react non-violently in any way. APF has done this um, in supporting some of our members in uh, <clears throat> places of conflict or uh, not necessarily war, but conflict and potential conflict, especially, excuse me, <coughs> working with young people uh, in their communities in places like Zimbabwe and Burundi to when violence sparks, to react non-violently and how they can do that effectively. Here in the UK, one of the things that we are continually confronted with is our 
the actions of the arms trade, uh, and as a nuclear power, the money that is spent on nuclear weapons, and bringing these issues to the wider community beyond those who uh, have been involved in peacemaking is a key factor for APF. So given the challenges that we see um, across the world, some of which you've just uh, described as well, how... Well, sorry. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, Yeah. please go ahead. Yeah, so I was saying, given the challenges that um, there that you've talked about and uh, generally exist in terms of the conflicts that are there around the world. Um, do you, number one, do you believe that we we are winning this battle against a um, rising number of conflicts in the world? And And number two, are you hopeful about the future? I, uh, I think those of us uh, from faith communities who believe that peace is essential to our faith must continue to work collectively and individually on various aspects of peace and nonviolence. I don't think anyone in January 2024 can say that peace is something that is, at the moment, available to many of our fellow human beings. I know we have been very focused during 2023, especially the latter part, on what is happening in Gaza, what's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, Just going back to a comment from your previous interviewee, Uh, Another thing that is very close to my heart is what is happening in the Sudan, which we don't know about, the genocide taking place there, the fact that the largest displacement of children in the world is in the Sudan. All these things really would say to one, how can you have any hope? But because... uh, For me, one of the key facets of Christianity is to have hope, and hope that so many of the challenges that we were given by Jesus, including not just to love our neighbor, but to love our enemies. For me, one of the greatest challenges that was posed, and is, of course, the second of the two great commandments, the first being to love God with all your heart, that these are things that we must hold on to. We mustn't desert. And those, those factors apply to all the great religions and the importance of working together for peace, something that the Weaker Prayer for World Peace uh, is a good example of, is something that I have to hold on to. Otherwise, like a lot of the world, I would be very, very depressed about the present situation. But we need to look for glimmers of hope, Hmm. places where people working together 
especially women peace builders who are often overlooked, but we know when women are involved in peace building, any peace agreement stands a 45% of lasting longer than five years Mm. than if women aren't involved. So I think what we need to do is encourage one another, encourage our communities, and have a level of being brave, which is something I don't often feel, but actually to stand up, to go against the tide. And uh, APF has always done that. We have taken the stance for peace and justice and reconciliation. I don't hear anyone talking in any of our huge present world crises about what's going to happen when they end because they will end nobody knows when and how much damage will be done before those ends come about but they will end and then what will happen and i think faith communities have a great role to play in reconciliation and i hope collectively we will step up to do just that Fingers crossed, absolutely. Um, and uh, and yes, we, we can only hope and pray for the better and also uh, try our best to um, to bring um, to bring some sense into into politicians, into other stakeholders to achieve uh, these very important objectives. Thank you very much, Sue Clayton, for joining us this morning. Really a pleasure to speak to you. Peace be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was Sue Clayton, who is the chair of the Anglican Pacifist Fellowship and a committee member of the Week of the Prayer for World Peace. Right. Um, Imam Usman, if I can come to you um, to ask you about, uh, we are talking about the the two very, very important issues uh, that, uh, that I think relate v- very well to the situation in the in the world today and the need in the world for both peace and justice and i think both of them these are very strongly inter- inter- intertwined these principles what does islamic teaching have to say about peace and justice um yes i think we discussed this in our first segment as well because it's just it just goes so hand in hand with islam islam i mean the name itself uh, translate as peace, mm. you know, peace and submission to God. Right. And uh, I think this this is the part that we are uh, neglecting the submission to God, because uh, I mean, you, to achieve peace, you need to be content, right? Mm. Because peace does mean peace within. Uh, you have to have peace within. Peace, you have within. peace without. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the absence of you know that peace inside you will mm. uh, cause troubles, and the absence of troubles is one aspect of peace but uh, the other aspect of peace is that um because humans naturally always want to advance they want to move forward yeah now even if there are no wars in the world are we truly at peace because people will think oh um i want to you know get rid of uh, lying in the world that's a different kind of uh, war you can say that we have to fight so there's different different uh, stages, different aspects of peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Islam 
speaks about obviously physical peace uh, in terms of political wars and all that but there is also a inner peace which we have to achieve and that can be achieved only if we follow uh, the way we are designed the way our creator designed us and that is that we have to we have to worship our creator this is the purpose of our lives the ultimate purpose everybody has their own purpose which is that i want to achieve something i want to become this i want to bring change to the world but uh, after all that when we die uh, i mean our changes our achievements remain in this world but what we take with us in the next world is the good deeds we did the the faith we had in god and uh, because life after death is uh, is is there's nothing materialistic you take with you your money stays here your children all your contacts um, you know only the good deeds you do the 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 good impact you had on the world that will reward you in the next life and justice as well is you know linked with this very strongly and his holiness hazrat mirza masur ahmed may allah be his helper the head of the hamdi muslim community and the caliph of islam has uh, i mean he's been speaking about this for many of his friday sermons but even before that in in the in the european parliament mm-hmm. in the um uh, in in the in america uh, i don't remember the place but he has been speaking about justice uh, not just on a on a smaller level on a global level and yes. especially addressing the world leaders mm. which are um but well, he spoke at the capitol hill actually capitol hill yes yeah. so he was addressing the world leaders that i mean our peace we 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 can be at peace we can try to do our little things but mm. again the the biggest impact that will have on the world is the leaders is the countries yeah um america is is a world power and with power comes responsibility and they, they are responsible for peace True. that that's why how i would put it if there's not peace in the world I, you could blame america because they mm. have the strength to you know um make peace even the uk and all other countries which have the power uh but yeah bringing back to islam the the importance of justice uh, if if i can give an example from from the life of the holy prophet peace be upon him the justice he portrayed uh there's a story that towards the end of his life um he was he was uh there was a war and he was uh, you know setting up the lines and the rows of the soldiers mm. uh and and he mentioned to everyone that if i have wronged you in any way you know we're going to war maybe you will die mm. uh, if we are, if i have wronged you in any way then step forward now and take your revenge mm. make make it equal make it make it just mm. i don't want to leave this world with uh, owing somebody any anything right so one of the companions stepped forward he mm. said that oh prophet of god you once you were aligning us just like now uh in in rows and and fixing our um you know our 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 um positioning mm. and you you turned around and accidentally you spear hit my back mm. or you you cut me in the back somehow mm. so i want to take a revenge for that right and all the other companions they were fuming they said how, how dare you i mean uh, to <laughs> say you want to hurt the the prophet who you mm. believe in mm. and the holy prophet said that don't say anything to him that's his right so he turned around he said you can uh yeah, go ahead and do it go yeah. ahead do it yeah he said oh prophet of god he, when you when this happened to me i was shirtless i didn't have a shirt on 
And at this point, the the some of the companions <laughs> they, they were about to grab him and beat him up. And the Holy yeah. Prophet said, "Don't touch him. I'm doing this. Let me do this." And he took off his shirt. He mm. said, "Go ahead." So the companion he leaned forward and he kissed his back, mm. and uh, he said that. Uh, I I just this was an excuse for me yeah, to, do to do this because who knows if I can ever do this again mm. but the the actual principle here is that the justice of the holy prophet portrayed that even um I mean he could have said you know so many things there's so many ways to avoid this he was this. the leader absolutely yeah, but yeah. he didn't have to ask yes he didn't even have to ask mm. this but he wanted to be just in mm. in all aspects in every single manner mm. and that also shows that if you are a just ruler your subjects will have that kind of love for you that they they will forgive you anything they won't they won't want to take revenge from from a good leader and um, apart from that if we if we carry on about peace um every aspect of islam you know leads us towards peace whether it be inner peace physical peace um global peace uh but nowadays uh, we have the i think the biggest or the most uh, prominent part where peace is needed is is Israel and Gaza and the conflict over there which is the highlight and in, in for that what can we do how can we achieve peace in that area uh again his holiness has told us what we can do and what his holiness is doing which is praying uh and you know also our our previous guest here um Sue who mentioned that mm. uh we are constantly praying for peace prayer is is so powerful because we are praying to god almighty who is the creator of the world he has he has all the powers if he wants peace to be in this world he can make it happen but he also expects us to you know ask for it we he he is the creator but he's also a uh he has other attributes that he is you can't take god for granted he's the master he's the master mm. um and uh, just i just remembered one uh, extract of the promised messiah uh mm. the founder of the Ahmadiyya muslim community may allah have peace uh, may peace be upon him mm. uh he wrote a book in his last book it was called a message of peace and in that book it was uh, more specifically directed to the hindus at that time in india uh but what he wrote is is a general advice it's is for everyone and one of the quotes one of the extracts uh is something like this that he said that if the hindus are willing to have peace with us with the muslims stop fighting stop hating we are willing to even go to this extent that we will stop eating the uh meat of cows mm. now this is we don't have to do this meat eating meat uh, cow meat in islam is permissible but the promised messiah's emphasis on peace was so much that mm. we will give up something lawful and mm. something a lot of people love mm. we will give this up if you are willing to, to step peace, forward yeah. in in peace terms mm. and this is our teaching this is the teaching of islam this is examples given by the previous uh, imam raza and imam mujib that uh, how how the holy prophets and portrayed peace a, a beautiful example is the treaty of hudaybiyah where he agreed that for the for the next 10 years there will be peace he the the mekans said that on this treaty we are the treaty was something like uh, muhammad the prophet of god uh, signs or, or has, makes this treaty with this and this mm. and they said we don't think you're a prophet of god so take mm. this off and the companions were furious again how dare you say this but yeah. the prophet of god said uh, prophet muhammad peace be upon him he said that take it off Yeah, and then not to mention there are so many other adverse um, uh, covenants within 
uh, within that um, uh, within that agreement. Uh, but the Holy Prophet, in the larger interest of peace, actually mm-hmm. agreed to um, uh, to signing that treaty, and that led to uh, to peace um, as well as uh, mm-hmm. the spread of Islam. Uh, in um, in Arabia and beyond, and that's when Islam spread the fastest during that time of correct, peace, exactly, absolutely, uh, which is um, which breaks the other myth that Islam was actually spread uh, through sword. Thank you very very much uh, for that, uh, Imam Usman Manan. That brings us towards the end of the show today. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. I must thank our producers, Damina uh, Chima Saiba, as well as um, the lead producer Sima Brahman, researchers Faiza Mansoor, Safa Ahmed and Amar Kabul. 9 o'clock news is next.